If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Matthew in chapter 28. Matthew in chapter 28. And once you get to Matthew 28, go down to verse 16. We're going to read 16 through 20 together uh, to start with. Now make sure you do have your Bible open, whether that be your hardback copy or on a uh, device, because we're going to be jumping uh, to and fro throughout the land in our time uh, this morning, and I'll be back in the English Standard Version um, today. All right, so we're going to start in Matthew 28, this is part seven of our series that we've entitled Dearest Place on Earth, which is exploring biblical church membership. We pray it's been fruitful and challenging for you thus far. Uh, this week, we're going to begin looking at the ordinances. We're going to look at baptism today, Lord's Supper next week, um, and then we'll wrap up this series in mid-June. So let's start in Matthew 28 and verse 16. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. God's word says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. It's God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. It was a frigid winter day on January 5th, 1527 in Zurich, Switzerland. Even so, many citizens of the city crowded around in anticipation on the banks of the ice-cold water of the Lamotte River to witness an execution. The 29-year-old Felix Mons was led from his prison cell through the streets and down to the waiting boat on the river. Along the way, he was praising God, preaching to the onlookers, even as priests walked with him and called him to recant the beliefs that brought him to this. Mons's mother and brother were among the throng, shouting, be faithful unto death, encouraging him to stand firm and not recant. His execution was ordered by the courts of Zurich and approved by his former friend and mentor, Protestant reformer Ulrich Zwingli. Mons's last moments were described like this. He was placed in a rowboat and his wrists firmly tied together and passed over his cocked knees and a heavy piece of wood thrust between his bent knees and his elbows. Trussed up in this manner, making swimming impossible, he was rowed to the other side of the Lamotte River, thrown overboard and thus made to perish. His last words being, into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. For what crime... Was Mons executed in such a way? Why would the Zurich court condemn a man to public execution by drowning him in the frigid waters of the Lamotte? Surely for a grave and serious offense, right? Why would someone like Zwingli, who we look back on as a crucial part of the Protestant Reformation, of which we are the fruit, stand by and approve the execution of a fellow Christian who was also once a pupil. Mons was executed because he insisted on teaching and practicing what's called believer's baptism. 
He was one of the first Anabaptists, which is a word that means rebaptism. Because in a time when the common practice was baptism of infants eight days after birth, Mons and his compatriots were convinced that Scripture portrayed only one kind of baptism. Baptism by immersion for those who can make credible confessions of faith in Christ and understood the gospel that they were being baptized into. Mons and his compatriots saw no evidence whatsoever of infant baptism. They saw not one person in all of the New Testament being baptized without professing faith in Christ. And so Mons and company simply were doing what Zwingli taught them to do. Adhere to Scripture alone, even if it meant to stand against their city and country, even if it meant disagreeing with friends, even if it meant to meet a grisly end for one's convictions. You see, in 1500s Europe, the Roman Catholic Church had a a monopoly on the Christian faith. So much so that when one was baptized as an infant, they were baptized into citizenship of even the city in which they were born. For Mons, the early Anabaptists, to teach believers baptism, they were pushing up against both civic and religious authority. The establishment saw them as upsetting the social order. And in the 10 years of the movement, over 5,000 Anabaptists were executed by the state, many by drowning in what the authorities mockingly called their third baptism. It's interesting to compare how we view and treat baptism to how the reformers did or how our Baptist forefathers did. Baptism was clearly a very serious topic for them to the point that Protestants were killing other Protestants over a disagreement about it. The trouble is we look back at them and we rightly condemn such actions but we also don't consider baptism with anything near the kind of gravity that they did. Baptism, it it sits in this nebulous place between not being a first order issue on the level of like the deity of Christ or his substitutionary death or his bodily resurrection or the doctrine of the Trinity, but it's also not unimportant nor non-essential. Nor is it merely a symbol as we typically think, but it's more than that. Baptism, this is where it sits. It's both not necessary for salvation, but also not given as an optional practice for the Christian in the New Testament, as it carries heavy significance for New Testament people. And while we may regard baptism as a minor or insignificant or maybe even relegate it to an individual matter up to each person, the fact is that the New Testament people would not have shared those sentiments. And clearly, not even our Baptist forebears would have said that since they were willing to die for their beliefs on baptism. The fact of the matter is, to a New Testament person, a non-baptized Christian would be a contradiction in terms. They simply would not have a category for it, and neither should we. So as we continue our series through biblical church membership, it's important that we spend a couple weeks on what we call the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we as Baptists, we have two ordinances as opposed to, say, the Roman Catholic Church who has seven seven sacraments. And they are given the name ordinance because they are two practices that Jesus commanded us to do or ordained. And they go hand in hand, baptism and Lord's Supper. 
this is an important sentence for this next couple weeks, okay? Baptism, as we will see, is the initiatory rite, and by rite I mean R-I-T-E, into following Christ. And the Lord's Supper is the continuing rite of ongoing faithfulness. Okay, let me say that again. Baptism is the initiatory rite into following Christ, and the Lord's Supper is the continuing rite of ongoing faithfulness. So in our time together, let's explore three important things about baptism that baptism does, and then I'll give you one exhortation regarding baptism for you and the church. Then next week we'll talk about the Lord's Supper, and then we'll partake in it. Okay, so number one, we baptized, we baptize and are baptized to obey Christ. Okay, to obey Christ. So we begin together in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. Note the scene, okay? Jesus has resurrected bodily. He has appeared to his disciples and hundreds of other ones, according to 1 Corinthians 15. And before he ascends to the right hand of the Father, he commissions his disciples. Now, if you remember, all the way back into week one in, the, in this series, we noted from Matthew 16 that in Matthew's gospel, Peter is a representative or a spokesman for the other disciples, okay? Now here, the apostles represent the church on the whole, okay? As it begins to expand throughout the earth. So when Jesus commissions the apostles here, this command flows out to the church as it spreads throughout the world. This is what Jesus says. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In other words, as God's Messiah and King Jesus has all authority that is possible to possess, okay? Heaven and earth encompass all things. And part of the reason he says this, establishes his authority, is because he's about to command them and us, right? So he first establishes his authority, he says, in essence, I have authority to command you, and so here's what I'm commanding you to do. This universal lordship means universal mission. It is nothing short, this Great Commission is nothing short of a king making a kingly declaration or summons, okay? And what does he command? He commands them and us to go and make disciples doing what? Baptizing them literally into the name of the triune God, into the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And also to do what? Teach them everything, Jesus has commanded, okay? Discipleship then is inextricably tied with, one, baptism into the name of the Trinity, and two, teaching obedience to what Jesus has said, okay? Nothing Jesus said is off the table, nor do we have the power to say what is and isn't valid in Jesus' teaching. All of Jesus' teaching from incarnation to ascension are for us to teach one another. And for how long, does it say? Until the end of the age, even while Jesus is with us while we do it. So this is what we must see for our discussion on baptism. Baptism is commanded by Christ. To be a disciple means inherently that you are coming under the authority of King Jesus which means he can command you, and you agree to pursue his commands. This does not mean your obedience will be perfect, but it does mean there will be a striving towards faithfulness 
for the rest of your days. If someone were to say that they are a Christian, but they don't care about what Jesus said, you really have to wonder if they even know what a Christian is. He's the king, right? His commands are for us to pursue, not sift through determining what is and what isn't valid, nor do we have the authority to simply throw out what he said out the window. That kind of Christianity is one unrecognizable to the New Testament and 2,000 years of Christian orthodoxy. And so, if we are teaching one another to obey all that he commanded, that includes these very words to be baptized. Do you see? If you are a disciple, to become a disciple is to commit to observe what Jesus commanded, all of it. Now, what does it mean to be baptized into the name of the Trinity? What is the significance of this phrase, into the name of? To be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is to pledge fidelity to the triune God. Name is an act of covenantal initiation and identification. It is an oath of allegiance to Christ, pledging undying fealty and loyalty to him and his rule. So not only is baptism commanded, and thus to be baptized is to take the first step of obedience to Christ, it also proclaims that one intends on living a life henceforth of obedience to Christ's commands, including the commands Christ affirmed, a.k.a. the Old Testament and the Spirit-inspired writings of his apostles, also known as the New Testament. Baptism, then, can be compared to an oath that one takes in expressing their allegiance to something or someone, okay? So let's illustrate this. I think back... When I was 17 year old, years old, standing in the MEPS building in downtown Denver, okay, after telling the U.S. government that I agreed to come under their authority, they, they had me sign, if you've been in the military, they, they had me stand in a room with a bunch of other wide-eyed teenagers, stand at attention, raise my right hand, and repeat an oath in the presence of witnesses. I swore fealty to the United States and to the president's orders and to obey all those in the chain of command in which I was to be placed, okay? What led up to me doing this was signing a ton of papers and being essentially asked repeatedly, do you know that this means your life is ours and that for this cause you may die? They were plain and honest about the potential costs leading to this oath, and I did so a few years after 9-11 at the beginning of Operation Iraqi View, so the cost was inherent before I took the oath, and they were like, you know, you're probably, you're going to go to Iraq, right? It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, which was true, okay? Now, when you become a Christian, you are saying, I've counted the cost, and I want to follow Jesus. My life is his, and I will die before compromising or denying him, and I will strive to obey him for the rest of my life. That allegiance you give to Christ happens internally. It happens in your heart and mind, but that internal allegiance is given outward expression through baptism. Baptism is a public 
oath-taking ceremony where you do what I did in MEPS all those years ago, but to a far, far, far greater extent. You are telling Christ, you are telling the triune God, you are telling the church, and you are telling the world that you have given your allegiance to Jesus and you will die for this gospel if that's what it takes. You are promising to strive to obey his commands and make disciples who make disciples for the rest of your life. It is the first step of obedience in the new believer's walk with Christ. Millard Erickson says, It is almost universally agreed that baptism is in some way connected with the beginning of the Christian life. It is the initiatory rite of the church. Is baptism then a symbol? Yes, but it is not a mere symbol. It's more than that. It is a public oath of allegiance to God's King, God's Messiah, God's Anointed One, the King of Ages who has been handed authority over every square inch of every galaxy in all the cosmos. To downplay or minimize or even to view baptism as a negotiable act that the Christian can take or leave is to disobey Christ and reject his divinely ordained oath-taking ceremony which I say this as someone who disobeyed for about a decade. There is a 10-year discrepancy in my life between my conversion and my baptism because I did not understand the seriousness and importance of that act. But baptism is the means by which Jesus designed for you and I and the church to show the world that our ultimate allegiance is to the triune God. To reject it would be like me telling the recruiter that I will join the military but refuse to take the oath. It would be like saying you want to get married but you don't want to recite vows. And this also helps us to answer the question, who is baptism for? Who is baptism for? Now, we would obviously disagree with our brothers who baptize infants because we believe, I mean, for goodness sake, it's in our name, we're Baptists. We believe only those who can make credible professions of faith ought to be baptized. We see here, don't you see, here in the Great Commission, that Jesus connects discipleship with the ability to obey and understand what he commanded. Ability to count the cost and to pursue everything Jesus commanded are connected here with baptism. On top of that, we see no explicit command in the New Testament to baptize infants, nor do we see a sim single example of it taking place. Further, we don't have evidence of the early church practicing anything but believers' baptism. On top of that, we have writings from many church fathers that you could go Google and look up, like Justin Martyr, Aristides. Tertullian of Carthage and Gregory all affirming believers' baptism by the mode of immersion. Therefore, recipients of baptism are disciples who are capable of hearing the word of Christ, understanding it, and responding obediently to it. The one and only pattern indicated in the New Testament is baptism of people who heard the gospel, repented of their sins, and believed on Jesus Christ. The subject of baptism should be someone who, as far as the local church has good reason to believe, 
desires to follow Christ and be baptized, and who lives consistently with an earnest confession of sin and repentance and faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Which brings us to point number two. Baptism is done to show our identity with Jesus. Baptism is done to show our identity with Jesus. If you would, please turn with me to Romans 6. Romans 6. I think you guys might be holier than the early service because I think they were all on their phones, so I couldn't hear the flipping of the pages, which I love to hear. Y'all got your paper copy and you're flipping like holy people. I like it. Don't tell them I said that. Or you can. I don't care. So Romans 6, all right? We're going to look at verses 1 through 7, okay? Now, before we read it, Paul begins this chapter by stating the absurdity of believing that one can become a Christian and continue in sin, okay? Some were arguing and some thought, well, if grace was abounding because it saved me in my sin, if I sin more, then grace will abound all the more, okay? In other words, they convinced themselves, and this shows you the insidiousness of our hearts and sin. They convinced themselves that sinning was good because then grace would have to cover over that sin and it will be more evidence of God's grace. Grace will abound all the more, okay? Now, let's see what Paul says, all right? We're going to read verses 1 through 7 in Romans 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So, says Paul, this idea that we should sin so grace may abound ought to never be the case. In fact, he says, the grace that was given is given not so that we could sin without recourse, but that we could kill sin, so that we could kill sin because of our identification with Jesus. Then he connects our identification with Christ with baptism. Do you see that? which he assumes all of his readers in Rome have been baptized, right? So he says in verses 3 and 4 that those who identify with Jesus are baptized into his death and into his resurrection. In other words, although baptism does not save, it symbolizes or pictures our identification with Jesus' own death and resurrection. And again, we have this language, did you notice, of into, being baptized into Jesus, which is a pledge of fidelity. Paul says that baptism signals an end to our former way of life. It tells Satan and the world and the principalities and the powers that we no longer identify with the kingdom of darkness. It proclaims new allegiances. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been buried with Christ, and I will be resurrected with Christ, and I will live in light of that fact. Baptism is an invitation to the church and the world to look at your life and observe what following Jesus looks like. That's what you're saying when you come out of this. Look at my life. This is what following Jesus 
looks like. It says that your old self, your old way of life, your old allegiances are no longer, and you are no longer on Satan's payroll, walking in darkness and disobedience. So to illustrate this, I, th- I was thinking about my father-in-law when he became a U.S. citizen many years ago. And after all the rigmarole, to get, you know it's a rigmarole, right? To get his citizenship, he had to take an oath of citizenship. And he had to say, here's a quote from the oath that new citizens have to take. They say, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure, which who uses that word, right? All allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have hitherto for been a subject or citizen. It said to utterly, he said he had to utterly renounce any other claimant to his allegiance and fidelity. Even if, this is what he's saying in this oath, even if his former country went to war against the United States, if required, he would have to bear arms against his old country, right? Why? Because to become a citizen of America means to utterly give undivided loyalty to one's country. Now, baptism is a picture of our new life in Christ, and it is a public renunciation of our former ways, of the kingdom of darkness, and of, of Satan and his ways. We're telling the church and the world that we have given our loyalty to Christ and that from henceforth we will work with Christ and the Spirit to kill sin, not bask in it. You thus are telling the church that they can count on overseeing this walk, that they will be able to observe life change in you. Not that you will suddenly like stop sinning, right? But that they could see a striving towards obedience and sin killing henceforth. What baptism pictures is that we identify with Jesus in both his substitutionary death on our behalf, that we will walk in a new way in light of his death and empowering spirit, and that we will be resurrected in the same way at the end of the age. So not only does it picture present hope, and life change, it signals future hope that one day our mortal bodies will be glorified and raised bodily in the same way that Jesus' was. Now, this also helps us answer the question about mode, okay? What is, what mode of baptism should we practice? Again, we would disagree with our brothers who practice infant baptism or sprinkling or pouring. We baptize by immersion, So we put the person completely under the water and back up again. And there are multiple reasons for this. Let me fire them off quickly. For one, this is how Jesus was baptized. We're told in the Gospels that Jesus literally went under and came up from the water. Second, the Greek word baptizo, where we get our word baptize, literally means to immerse or to dunk. Third, The baptisms we see in the New Testament appear to all be by immersion. So if you think of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, he's converted and he asks, what prevents me from being baptized? There's some water right there. And Philip says nothing. And so it says that they went into the water. And fourth, baptism by immersion, and this is important, is the only mode that pictures the burial and resurrection like we see in this present text, right? Sprinkling or pouring does not picture 
death and resurrection that we participate in with Christ the same way that immersion does. Now, this does not mean there aren't going to be occasional extenuating circumstances that might prevent immersion, such as if you have somebody who converts and they're bedridden, they simply cannot be immersed. But ordinarily, and that's an important word, those who are being baptized ought to be immersed because only immersion pictures vividly the idea of our death, burial, resurrection, and walking into new life. Okay? Now, grab your Bibles, join me in 1 Peter 3. Okay? 1 Peter and chapter 3. Now, when you get to 1 Peter 3, jump down to verse 18. Okay? Isn't the, the pages flipping just such a great sound? <laughs> okay. 1 Peter 3, and we're going to read 18 through 22. So 18 through the end of the chapter, all right? And it'll also be behind me on the screen. All right. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Okay, here we see Peter talking about Jesus's substitutionary death, saying he suffered once for all sins, that it is an exchange of righteousness for unrighteousness. In other words, Jesus took on the punishment of our unrighteousness so that his righteousness would be transferred to our bank, bankrupt account. Okay, so there's this great exchange that happened. He was thus resurrected bodily, and we see that at the end of the chapter, that Christ has been seated at the right hand of the Father ever since with all things being subjected to him. Bless you. What Peter does here is contrast, did you notice, our baptism with the water of Noah's ark, okay? Noah and his family, it says, were saved through water from the wrath that God was pouring out on the wicked world. I mean, you guys know the story, right? It was an escape from divine judgment. And so Peter is saying that our baptism pictures the same kind of deliverance, right? Our deliverance, our escape from divine judgment because God's judgment was poured out onto Christ. He went through the waters of judgment so that we could arrive safely on the day of the Lord. We deserve judgment, but because of Christ and his work, we escape it, right? So far from Noah's Ark being a cutesy portrayal of animals hanging out on a boat like that's on numerous nursery walls throughout the land, it was an act of divine and horrible judgment on the wicked. <laughs> that's the story of Noah's Ark, right? Our baptism, says Peter, is an appeal to God for the new covenant blessing of a good conscience, what? On the basis of Jesus' resurrection. That's what verse 21 says. Peter's not saying that we are saved by baptism itself. He is saying that baptism is a symbolic appeal to God on the basis of Jesus' resurrection. You aren't trusting in baptism itself to save you. 
You're trusting in God's mercy through Jesus' resurrecting power to save you. Juan Sanchez, in his commentary on 1 Peter, says, Baptism is a picture that this had happened to us too. Not that we have been brought through the judgment and destruction of Noah's day, but that we will be brought through the judgment of the future day when God will destroy the ungodly. Just as God saved Noah and his family from his judgment through the floodwaters, baptism pictures our salvation from the floodwaters of God's judgment through the resurrection of Jesus. Similarly, Thomas Schreiner says, the waters of baptism, like the waters of the flood, demonstrate that destruction is at hand. But believers are rescued from these waters in that they are baptized with Christ who has also emerged from the waters of death through his resurrection. Just as Noah was delivered through the stormy waters of the flood, believers have been saved through the stormy waters of baptism by virtue of Christ's triumphant death. Okay? So, but like what we saw in Romans 6, baptism also pictures the washing away of our sin and guilt. That's what Peter's saying. The cleansing power of Jesus' blood to wash away all our sin and even sin's grip on us. Which is why Peter says that the waters don't remove dirt, but the water does symbolize an internal washing that has already taken place. Okay? So baptism itself doesn't make us clean, but it's a vivid picture of the cleansing of Christ's salvation that he provides for us. Okay? So let's, let's illustrate this, this picture. Think of a wedding ring, okay? This is my wedding ring. And it's my second ring because the first one that Silent gave me, I refused to take off for years. Like years and years, I wouldn't take it off for a shower or nothing, okay? I'd never let it leave my finger for anything. Through Kuwait and Iraq, through moving state to state, it stayed on my finger. But then my finger became swollen and it straight up would not come off. So we had to cut it off, right? The ring, not my finger. A fact, by the way, that Sila will not let me live down, all right? She'll tell you she told me to take it off before it got swollen, and I didn't listen, which is also true, okay? So I have this one instead, which is made of tungsten. So if my finger swells, it can't be cut off, okay? I actually have to cut my finger off. So I'll listen to her next time, all right? In any case, this wedding ring, nor the wedding ceremony itself, created the love that I have for her, right? I loved my wife before the ceremony. It's not like once she put the ring on my finger or I put the ring on hers that we all of a sudden loved each other, right? It wasn't like this magical act of love creation. It rather was an outward picture communicating an internal reality. So every time you see me you're going to see this ring on the finger which tells you that I belong to Sila. And when you see her, you will see her ring on her finger, which tells you that she belongs to me. Baptism acts like a wedding ceremony or a ring. It vividly pictures something that took place internally. Further, it is an oath, like a wedding ring, to stay true to everything I vowed to be and do at that ceremony. So every time I look at it, it reminds me of the promises that I made. So it is with baptism. Baptism doesn't cleanse us, it doesn't save us, but it does communicate vividly that we have taken an oath to the triune God based on the saving power that the persons of the Trinity graciously provide. Baptism is like a soldier's uniform. It's a, like a wedding vow, a wedding ring, an oath of enlistment all wrapped up into one. 
In fact, in the early church, baptism was thought to have served to picture six things to the church and the world. Forgiveness of sins, deliverance from death, regeneration or new birth, the gift of the Holy Spirit, renouncing Satan, and identification with Christ. The early church saw it as a public, vivid, tangible picture of all of those things. Again, baptism doesn't do those things, but it does picture them through its plunging down and rising up in likeness of Christ's death and resurrection. Third, number three, baptism is done to show our identification with God's people, the church. Okay? Baptism is done to show our identification with God's people, the church. Go ahead and turn with me. Only two more places we'll turn to. Acts 2. Okay? Acts chapter 2, if you please. And then once you get there, go ahead and jump down to verse 38. Okay? So, Acts 2, we have this picture. You're familiar with this scene, right? Peter. Every pastor in the history of pastors has been envious of this sermon. Because this is Peter's first sermon, and it's incredible. My first sermon was hideous, okay? Ten minutes is when I went, and he saved, you know, 3,000 people got saved. I think I unsaved people, all right? No, I'm, that's a joke, all right? I don't believe, don't go out and say, and Vaughn believes you can lose your salvation. I don't, okay? But he just crushed it with this sermon, okay? So we're going to read at the tail end of this sermon, okay? Verse 38, and then we'll read to verse 41, okay? Look what it says. Verse 38, Peter said to them, so this is right when the sermon ends, and they ask him, what shall we do with this? And Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who were far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. Now look at this. So those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000. Okay, so what we have here is Peter giving one of the greatest sermons of all time, okay, on Pentecost. And the Spirit falls down, converts 3,000 people. So after Peter gives this amazing sermon, the people, verse 37 says, were cut to the heart. Okay, I love that. And they ask, what should we do? Okay, and Peter says what? Repent. And be baptized. Okay, then you jump to verse 41, and what does it say? It says that those who received the word and were baptized were added to their number. Okay, and then we have this beautiful picture of what these new converts did in verses 42 through 47, which is a paradigm for what the church should look like. Okay, after being baptized, they were made part of the church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They ate together. They took the Lord's Supper together. They shared their stuff. And they multiplied. All right? Now, note that, again, the initial step into obedience to Christ is to repent and believe in the gospel and then to be baptized. That's the order we have here. So, again, we have a picture of people who can repent and believe being the ones who are baptized and that they were baptized both into Christ and into the church, because they were added to the 120. In other words, they were added to the church, and the church had a record of who was in it. Their baptism, you understand, didn't baptize them into individualism and self-driven Christianity. It baptized them into Christ and 
into his people. These are inseparable. And our why, ordinarily, one, baptism should be required for church membership. And two, why when someone is baptized, they ought to thus become a member of the baptizing church. Bobby Jameson, he wrote an awesome book on the connection between baptism and church membership called Going Public. And he said this, Baptism is not just inseparable from local church membership, but coincident with it. Membership is the house. Baptism is the front door. Since a church on earth represents the kingdom of heaven, it is authorized to affirm only those who submit to its authority, which is God's appointed means of having people submit to his authority. That is, a church may baptize only those who are coming out of the world and into the church through their baptismal profession of faith. And then he adds this, if a modern autonomy-loving American happened to be living in Jerusalem at Pentecost and told the apostles, I want to be baptized, but I don't want to join the church here in Jerusalem just yet, they would have sent him packing. So let's circle back to the illustration of my oath of enlistment, okay? Let's say, I told the recruiter or the fella who was administering the oath that I wanted to join the military. But I, never, not, I didn't want to take the oath, okay? I'm not going to take the oath. I'm not going to wear the uniform, and I don't want to be in a squadron with any other people, okay? If I told them, I want to wear what I want to wear, when I want to wear it, I want to do what I want, and I want to live my military life with having, without having to participate with anyone or obey or submit to anyone else. What do you think... <laughs> They would have said, after they caught their breath from laughing, they would tell me that this probably was not for me, or they'd tell me that what I said made no sense. Essentially, they'd say, what you want is not the military. I don't know what it is, but it's not the military. You want something else entirely. Why? Because for one, I do not get to set the parameters of military life. Someone who has authority does. Further, taking the oath binds me to them. It shows that I am willing to publicly renounce authority over my own life. It says that I will obey those placed over me, and it thus puts me into a community of other people who took the same oath that I did. Further, wearing a uniform, the same one as everyone else, shows outwardly that I'm part of something bigger than myself. I don't lose my identity but I do join my identity with others who I have committed to serving with and even dying for. You see? Baptism does something similar. It doesn't just show that I'm identifying with Christ, which it does. It shows that I'm identifying with his people. It shows that I am not my own. It shows that I do not get to live life the way I want but the way he calls me to, which is inextricably tied to his body and bride, the church. Baptism is a public oath-taking ceremony, a renunciation of both Satan and my self-driven autonomy and individualism. It says, I intend to live my life under the rule of Christ, and Christ calls us to live in community with others who have taken the same oath. 16th century Anabaptists uh, Balthazar Hubmeyer, he was talking about baptismal vows. This is what he said. It's very good. He said, it is a commitment made to God publicly and orally before the congregation in which the baptized person renounces Satan and all his imagination and works. 
He also vows that he will henceforth set his faith, hope, and trust solely in God and regulate his life according to the divine word in the strength of Jesus Christ our Lord. And if he should fail to do so, he thereby promises the church that he would dutifully accept brotherly discipline from it and its members. So you think back to the text last week from Ephesians 4. What did it say? Speaking about our unity that we are to diligently maintain in the church, Paul reminds us of what? He says, there is one body, you remember, and one spirit that indwells each member as well as being present in the assembly, binding them together. There is one faith, one Lord. What's the next one? One baptism that we were all baptized into and one Father who is over all and through all and in all. Paul links there baptism to church membership. He says that your brothers and sisters in the church were all baptized with the same baptism. You all took the same oath of allegiance by being buried and raised through the water, which symbolizes your common faith, Lord, Spirit, and Father. Or consider the text we looked at in week two. And I'm going to put this up here. You don't have to flip there. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13 says this. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Okay, I lied. It's not going to be up there. Just take my word for it, okay? 1 Corinthians 12 through, 12, 12 through 13, if you want to look it up later, okay? We are all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So there, there Paul explicitly says that when we were baptized, we were baptized into the church. I mean, it's plain as day. Now, you might say, as some have said, well, I can be baptized into the universal church without having been baptized in a local church. Into w- to which I ask, how? How can you be an obedient member of the universal church without being an obedient member of a local church? How can your universal membership in Christ's body be faithfully expressed without being joined to a local outpost of the kingdom of Christ? Paul says that when we are baptized, we are baptized into one another. So baptism simultaneously pictures our identification with Christ and his people. We might want to try to separate those, but the New Testament does not. They're linked. That's why when the people of Pentecost were cut to the heart regarding God's Messiah, whom Peter says, you crucified, they asked, how are we supposed to respond to this? And Peter says, repent, believe, be baptized, and then they were added to the church and lived in such a way that the confession of Christ was put on display for others and the watching world. So the task before the church is to take baptism seriously and to understand that those being baptized are to be people who can make a credible profession. And after that baptism, they join together with the body and submit to its oversight and care. Further, the church needs to ensure that if someone wants to join the church, that they have been baptized by immersion in the name of the Trinity, showing that they have taken the first step of obedience to Christ. Because if they haven't, how can the church expect obedience in everyday life if the first step of obedience hasn't been taken? Jameson, quoting him again, he said, when the church baptizes a person, it affirms him as a true confessor making a true confession. It publicly endorses that person's citizenship. Thus, the initial and initiatory means by which the church enacts its institutional charter and exercises the keys of the kingdom is baptism. 
Just as a passport attests to someone's citizenship in this country, as opposed to all others, so baptism declares a person's citizenship in God's kingdom over all against competing powers. Okay? So let's put together everything we've said so far in one sentence. We can say that baptism is an oath taken in obedience to Christ that pictures our public identification with Jesus and his church. Okay? Now, fourth and finally. Here's an exhortation to you and us. Turn, last place, 1 Corinthians and chapter 10, okay? 1 Corinthians and chapter 10. And we're going to look, start in verse 1, all right? 1 Corinthians and chapter 10. An exhortation to you and us, and that is this. Here's the exhortation. Remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. Let's read verses 1 through 14 of 1 Corinthians 10, okay? Look what it says. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it was written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a reference, a quote from the golden calf incident. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instructions on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to men. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. Now, you might have been sitting through this whole thing as someone who has already been baptized, thinking, okay, I understand, I have a better picture of baptism, but what do I do with this? What do I do with this? Now, aside from the exhortations I've given throughout regarding the church's place in baptism and showing you some of what the New Testament has to say about baptism so you can communicate and articulate it to others, here is what you do with it. You must not forget your own baptism. Now truly, when was the last time you thought about your baptism? You think about it every day? Every week? Every month? Do you think about it every time we take the Lord's Supper? When you're tempted, do you draw off of it? You consider what Paul is saying here as well as everything else we've said this morning. Paul is drawing off Israel's wilderness experience, which we've also been exploring in our study of Exodus for a better part of two years. And what Paul does is he calls them who were in the wilderness our fathers. And two, he reminds us that the pre-incarnate Christ was present in the wilderness, right? Because he was the rock. And three, he draws a line of similarity between Israel's going through the Red Sea and their eating manna with our baptism and Lord's Supper. And he reminds them that even though the Israelites had been rescued in this glorious way, 
by the hand of God through the plagues and the part of the Red Sea and the eating of miraculous bread in the wilderness, those things did not themselves save them, did they? Ben Witherington says, Paul's not arguing that the Red Sea crossing was a sacrament, nor is he suggesting that manna was in some sense a sacramental food, just like the Lord's Supper. His point is the Israelites had the same sort of benefits as Christians do, even benefits from Christ himself, and even this did not secure them against perishing in the desert and losing out on God's final and greatest blessing. In other words, you know that Israel fell into idolatry and immorality. They, says Paul, craved evil things. They grumbled. Some were even destroyed. And this, he says twice, is an example for us. Paul says that they were all. All of them were baptized into Moses. Yet their baptism in the sea was no guarantee that they would reach their final destination. As we've said, although they were taken out of Egypt, it seems some of them never got the Egypt out of them. So it's safe to say, don't you think, the Israelites forgot their baptism into Moses when they had crossed the dry ground of the Red Sea. They forgot the miraculous and gracious saving power of God on their behalf, didn't they? They forgot. Here's Paul's point. He's saying, don't you dare do the same thing. Do not presume upon your status. Don't presume that since you are a Christian that you could do as you please with no recourse. Rather, Remember your baptism. Remember the oath that you took when you were plunged into the water, how that symbolized the death of your old way of life and how you were pulled back from the water and how that symbolized your new life in Christ, who is himself the resurrection and life, and how that enables you to kill sin, flee idolatry, kill grumbling in your heart so that you will withstand temptation and stand before the Lord at the end of the age and hear those words, well done my good and faithful servant. Paul's saying that those who have baptism but don't have faith in what they were baptized into will not withstand the day of the Lord. We need to remember our baptism and draw off the pledge that we made when we undertook that act. My, my former professor, Alan Street, says, while baptism is not a magical rite that keeps one from falling, it's a proverbial line drawn in the sand that shouts, do not cross back into old territory. Remember your oath. Looking at my wedding ring helps me remember the vows I took. Wearing my uniform when I was in the military reminded me of the day, uh, that day in that room in downtown Denver and the pledge I took with my hand raised. It reminded me I was part of something bigger than myself and that there was conduct expected of me that reflected that oath and uniform. Taking citizenship oaths, remind new citizens of where their new allegiances are. So when temptation sparkles before your eyes as it sparkles before mine, when the thrill of sin gets your heart pumping, when grumbling starts to percolate in your heart and your tongue, remember your baptism. At all times, remember your baptism. Remember what it represented. Remember what you were telling Christ and the world and the church. Remember your vows. Remember that you proclaimed the end of your old life and with it the sins that once held you captive. Remember that Christ is yours and you are Christ. Remember that nothing in this world can satisfy you the way Christ can. 
and remember what awaits you in the future, a resurrection like his resurrection. Remember your baptism, friends, and rest not on, your, not on the oath itself nor on your ability to keep it, but in the one whom you made the oath in and through, for he is faithful. And he will carry you safely to the shores of redemption. Even so, he empowers you to live in light of it as you walk in newness of life for the glory of our triune God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for all these various texts, for your holy and inspired word and what they say, what they mean, about what they tell us about baptism. Now, there are... There have been times, as I've said, in my life where I was straight walking in disobedience, not, not thinking myself a Christian without having been baptized. And although baptism doesn't save, never has, and never will, help us to see as we are people of extremes that we could, we could fall into the one extreme of saying that baptism is necessary for salvation or we go fall into another extreme of saying it, it really a, is a negotiable that we could take or leave and it's really not all that important. Help us find that center ground that the Bible does. It says, you're not saved by the waters of baptism, but it is a public declaration of who we are in Christ. That he is ours, we are his. That we are taking an oath saying, we want to obey our king. We want to renounce our old ways of walking in sin and darkness but that we want to, by the Spirit's power, pursue a life of obedience in Christ, our King, who has made the way available. And help us as a church just lean on each other, lean on one another. We, we saw that you are, we, we are baptized not, not just in Christ, but we are, but that we are baptized into the church. And so you have given us the church as a gift that we could navigate the darkness of life with one another. Help us to shed our masks. Help us to be honest and open with one another. Help us to commit to one another and submit to one another and love one another, bear one another's burdens, and reach the world. Reach those in darkness in our very own community and see them saved and taking the plunge into the baptismal waters. Help us be faithful in all these things. We can't do it without your leading, without your power, without your conviction. Move us mold us, shape us, help us be obedient to Christ our King. And it's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen.